Well, today we're talking about that from the eighth chapter of Mark. We're talking uh, about one of the most literal, pivotal moments in the ministry of Jesus. And I say it's literally pivotal because it's pivotal in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters long, and it's on the 50-yard line. This is right here in chapter 8. This is almost at dead center on word count between the first part of Mark and the last part of Mark. And it would appear like any great author, Mark, as he's building his story and telling his story, because each gospel writer is telling a slightly different story, it's as if Mark intended for this to happen. And it would seem that that's not just accidental. It would appear that Mark has been building some blocks that move to this moment, and then the latter part of this moment is going to push back at this point, back to this, prove this part. And so one of the facets of it, and we're going to dive deeper into this, but is the theme of disappointment. We've all experienced disappointment. If you got my email, I kind of referenced this. The great confirmation that what they hoped Jesus was is confirmed by Jesus himself, followed by by some further teaching on what this means that he is this. So it's simultaneously confirmed, and then he goes, yeah, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. And there is a letdown. So just, just to get us kind of the wheels turning, uh, what's something in life that you've experienced where you had great hopes and then you were disappointed? Before we get into the text. Anybody got a, a story? Don't say your first marriage. Um, you know, there's a few, there's a few of you. I know your story, and that was what you were going to say. So, Charles, falling off, a roof. falling off a roof. Okay, you were looking forward to going on the roof, and then you were disappointed by falling off it. Okay, all right. I never look forward to going on any roof ever, but okay. I saw a hand over here movement. Maybe no. There's some of that that you know, and that's actually a beautiful picture of what happens here because. There's the, man, that's a letdown, followed by, hey, I didn't get the promotion in the town I want to live in with an awesome climate and a view of the mountains every day, and then I'd be looking for a new job in six months. So that worked out nicely. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. Yes. Any other? Yeah, Lee. Second marriage. Your second marriage. Uh, uh, you guys wish you were here, don't you? Hmm. Any other any other disappointments? I know right now some of you are like, should I share this one? Maybe not. Maybe I'll share this. Well, over lunch, if you go out for lunch with the buddies, then you can talk about your disappointments over lunch. Because this is really, like I said, this is kind of the cloud that is over this section. So just to prepare you for it. So we're in Rome or Romans, Mark. We're in Mark 8. And we start with verse 27, and then we go on <clears throat> to the, really to the end of the chapter. But let's handle it kind of in incremental sections as we do. And somebody read Mark 8, verses 27, 28, 29, and 30. Just those four verses. Is someone willing to do that? So, so really, here's, here's the confirming hope. These guys, for seven into eight chapters, uh, they have been 
pinning their hopes and following Jesus around because they have a very strong sense that he is the Messiah. And now it's confirmed. And so they bet on the right horse. Now before we uh, unpack that bit, they go into an area um, called Caesarea Philippi. And if I was Terry, I would have brought you a map. So just imagine, like, my fist is the globe. Caesarea Philippi's here. So now you know. Uh, it's, you know, if you're real curious, that's why Google exists, all right? You can look it up. Caesarea Philippi, though, if you kind of catch on, is named after Caesar, Caesarea, and Philip. And Philip's brother was Herod Antipas. And so the town was a town that was under the thumb of a Herod the Great. And um, Caesar Augustus kind of gifted him the property. Caesar Augustus gifted him the rule over that countryside. And so in honor of Caesar Augustus, Herod built a shrine to both Caesar Augustus as a way of honoring him as the son of a god, because Caesar Augustus was the son of the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and then when he died, he ascended into the divinity that was the, you know, the role that Caesars would play upon their death. And so there's a temple to Caesar Augustus in this town. There is also a shrine to the, to the, to the Greek god Pan, who was the god of the underworld. And it was all around a very heavily Roman-influenced town. So... Imagine Jerusalem and everything you might know about Jerusalem, extremely Jewish and religious. Picture now the opposite. So whatever that might be, it would be probably the difference between Branson and Vegas, right? Branson is sort of like the Vegas for people who still believe in God. And Vegas is, well, for people who like to go to Vegas, right? So there's uh, two very separate type of entities, am I right? So if you've been to both, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, that, that's what it's like. So there you go. So you have a town that isn't, this is not what we would call God's country. This isn't the town that any country singer would sing a song about. This has got all the themes that are the opposite of every Garth Brooks song. It's that kind of town. So why does Jesus go there? Not rhetorical. I'm just curious. What do you think? Why, if you're Jesus and you're with your disciples, you've been all over, why go there? What's that? People. Maybe the people are hungry there. Maybe, they're, uh, maybe they've tried all this stuff and it's found wanting. Yeah, it's a good answer. Yeah, the gates of hell shall not prevail. That's the, the shrine to Pan. That, that's, um, that's in another spot. Yep, mm -hmm. it's there. Jesus did some preaching there. It's okay to guess. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us. Here's the good news. You can literally guess on this one. And uh, you, you, you might be right and you might be wrong and none of us know which is which. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. They need Jesus just as badly as Jerusalem needs him. Yeah. Target-rich environment. Target-rich environment, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're a fisherman and you know there's a lot of fish over in that lake, you're like, I'm going to that lake, not the lake that doesn't have fish. So, yeah, George. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a good point in that. That if you, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, you get you get pulled out of your comfort zone. This is if you've ever led led teams of people. One of the things they'll tell you to do is get uh, get that team away from what they're familiar with. So you take them maybe to another. If you can't, if you don't have money on the budget, you 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 take them to a part of town that makes them feel uncomfortable. You take them to a space that they don't have familiarity with. So there is a certain part where all of a sudden all of the 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 pieces that they find very comforting aren't there. So now they're in enemy they're kind of in enemy, enemy territory of sorts. They get to circle up and their their uh, their senses are heightened. Incidentally, this is why when when people go on mission trips, uh, usually they come back transformed or at least touched by the experience and that one week or so of their life in some part of the world that's in distress they go that might have been the most important thing I've done in 10 years and part of it is is every sense is heightened I, you know when I go into Brahms the only thing I'm thinking is I'm here to get a bag of ice and some milk that's I'm not thinking I'm not tuned in to every feature that is Brahms, but if I'm in a part of town where I think someone might shoot me here, I, I, every, I'm looking around. I'm very aware of every bit of my surroundings. So, Lee, will you say something? So it's it's really interesting. So you think about it. There's a there's a couple a uh, couple other observations here we could make. One is this is a town that carries Caesar's name, and Caesar is the Lord. He's he's the king. And so there's this incredible contrast. Just think about the contrast for a second between this up till now who appears to be a hick Jewish prophet of some kind going into a town dedicated to the emperor of the Roman Empire. And they're having a conversation over who's really Lord. And his disciples go, your Lord, not Caesar's Lord. Now that's a subtlety, but it's, a, it's almost a reminder, just it, if I could almost make it sound like a devotional point, if you will. This isn't what the text is teaching us, in other words, but sometimes when we have a devotional moment where we're reflecting and we're thinking of different applications. But one way we could apply this is we could... We could remind ourselves, no matter where we're at, whatever situation we're at, you could be at the U.S. Capitol and think, a lot of power right here. You could be standing in front of the U.S., uh, the White House, and say, a lot of power here. You could be standing in front of the Supreme Court building and say, a lot of power here. Those three would represent the governance of, of a most powerful nation on earth. Jesus is still Lord. Like, just to be clear... No matter who we assess as most powerful, not most powerful. Temporary, temporarily powerful, but they can't do certain things. God can control the world. Now, he doesn't intervene in the way that we wish he would, like if he was a genie in a lamp, right? Most of us 
throw up prayers to God, kind of like he's Aladdin, you know, the, in, the, in the cartoon. You know, we like rub the lamp and like, God, take care of this for me. And then we get a little disappointed and annoyed he doesn't do that. That's not God, that's a genie in a lamp. But sometimes we pray to God like he's the genie in the lamp and then we're ticked off at the genie. But that's not God. God could solve the climate crisis. He can solve that. That's within his purview. Um, but guess what? No elected official can do. Solve the climate crisis. They might may, they, maybe they can make some prog progress. I mean, most of us in this room might be skeptical of how much progress they can make. They can make some. But God can transform that. So this is just it. You go into a place that is the amplification of Roman influence and Roman power. And Jesus' disciples go, yeah, they're not that powerful. They, they, you are. We'll get to that. Why did he say, don't, let's not talk about this. We'll talk, well, I'll explain that one in a minute. You got ahead of me and that's good. I like how your minds, I like how the gears are turning. The only thing I would, I would wonder about is if location doesn't matter, why does Mark tell us the location? Because there's many times we're like, hey, they're just travel along and they tell a story. But here he wants us to know the zip code. So that whenever you see that, that means pay attention to that. That's more than uh, that. That that's more than just a a curious little blip. If you think about it, ink is in short supply, paper is in short supply. The way they wrote was succinct and to the point, because we can be wordy. Because well, ink is well, what's it to us? But to them, so when they put in a little detail like where it's at. There's something. Okay. Well, since you, since that, um, since one uh, kind of movement forward came, you know, they reply to him and say, "Hey, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah or one of the prophets." And it's re it's really interesting, is that when um, it, up till this point in Jewish history, they had come to believe that not only would a Messiah come. And in their mind, this was super David. This is one of David's offspring, but he had all of the strengths of David and none of the foibles of David. He had all of the power and influence of David, but he didn't have any of the Achilles heels of David. So David had a few of those, but he would be super David, if you will, kind of a superhero. But before he came, there would be Elijah. Now, somehow they had extrapolated from different prophetic readings that an Elijah would show up. So that's why when Jesus says, hey, who do, who do, who do people say I am? Well, some people say you're John the Baptist. And uh, Jesus is like, well, you know, he was a pretty cool guy, but I'm not him. He's him. Uh, or maybe you're Elijah. And uh, again, I, I, here's, if you don't know the story of Elijah, just go to 1 Kings 18. Just write that down. I mean, we don't have time to talk about it. But 1 Kings 18. It was my, one of my favorite stories of my childhood. Elijah trash talks his enemy. He uses sarcasm and even uses potty jokes. It's a great story. I did, the summation is prophets of Baal and Elijah face off. Elijah represents the one true God. The Baal prophets, over 300 of them, they represent Baal who was symbolized, by the way, in an Asherah pole. Do you know what an Asherah pole was? It was what we call a phallic symbol. 
So whenever you read in the Old Testament an Asherah pole, it was an erection sticking out of the ground. Now that's something you'll never hear anyone say from the platform here at Crossings, <laughs> ever, okay? <laughs> Don't quote me. Wait, we're recording this. Um, but that's what, that's what we understand the Asherah pole was. So imagine, you know, we oftentimes like, ah, oh, this culture has just gone to heck in a handbasket. It's terrible. I mean, it's so worldly, and it's so this, and it's so that. Imagine just walking through town, and you're like covering your little girl's eyes because there's just these phallic symbols sticking out of the ground for fertility, right? Anyhow, so the prophets of Baal, they're all for this, and Elijah says, how about this? We'll both have a bull on an altar, and whoever can conjure up fire. You can't burn it. You have to conjure up the fire. Your God has to show up and burn the thing as an acceptable offering, and so he lets the prophets of Baal go first, and they're dancing and doing stuff, cutting themselves. And this is the trash talking. Elijah's like, probably Baal's using the toilet. So maybe you need to give him a little more time because he's got to relieve himself and wipe and all this before he can come. Like, that's in the Bible, which, again, this is why he's like a kid. It's like my favorite. It's potty jokes. And, and then he just keeps trash talking, and it doesn't work. And so then Elijah's like, God, please show up. After pouring all kinds of water all over his altar, fire comes down. That would be one of the great moments in world history to repeat. Fire comes down, burns up the offering, the stones. That's a hot fire. All the water, everything else. And then Elijah goes, I win, kill all those guys. And they do. It's a pretty neat moment. Um, unless you're a prophet of Baal, in which case, it's not your favorite moment. You know, those poor prophets of Baal now are like, well, that was a bad day. I bet on the wrong horse. So, so they're like, hey, maybe you're Elijah, which seems complimentary. And Jesus is like, not close, not even, not even. Interestingly enough, later it comes out that, yes, Elijah would come. It's John the Baptist, not a, a reincarnation but in a, a proto, a type. Uh, Elijah was a prototype, and John the Baptist is in the type without the ability to call down fire from heaven, which still, to me, is one of the great miracles. Well, and it, Well, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. I think he's one of the witnesses. That'd be kind of fun to have him come in. I always say, I, growing up as a kid, my, my grandfather had all this art of Jesus coming back, you know, riding on things. And I always thought it'd be sweet if he comes back riding on a fiery asteroid. That would be awesome. You know, like, because, you know, the, that comes up on the news all the time. Like, an asteroid's coming. Don't worry. This one won't hit us. But one did once. So maybe someday we'll all be exterminated. But that would be pretty cool to be like, hey, an asteroid's coming. There's someone on it. <laughs> That'd be pretty slick. Anyhow, all right, enough of that. Um, I don't think that's how it's going to work out at the end, asteroid, Jesus on it, but still, that'd be pretty cool if it was. But, so Jesus, um, so he, they say, hey, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Why not? Why not? Uh, it's not his time, yeah. There's another reason, too, and that's because when you say the word Messiah, that had connotations to it. And he explains what the definition of the Messiah is going to be. And it's so contrary to everybody else's definition at the time. It, it would be like telling starving people, there's food over there. Only food doesn't mean something edible. Um, food... Food means um, a bunch of lumber you can build a house with. Now that's not a good analogy because I'm not. These are not one for one. Please don't go too far and say I just called Jesus a bunch of lumber. 
that's not the one-for-one one illustration. What I'm saying is, is when all your life you have defined something one way and then you find out the definition's wrong, it's very difficult to use the word, even if it's the right word. It just so happens that everybody is using the improper definition of that thing. So uh, we bump into it sometimes. People will um, use a word that they either can't pronounce or they, they um, for whatever reason, have the habit. So, for instance, I have a friend who doesn't say specifically. He says specifically. And some of it's a bit of a, a, like it's stuck in his brain, and then he'll catch himself and be very frustrated about it, but he can't bring himself to say specifically. Pacifically means something entirely different, you know? So it would be this kind of deal where you use a word. And so then he begins to explain to them how they, because they grew up in that culture too. So when they're like, sweet, we bet on the right horse. He's going to be the Messiah, which means at some point we all get really nice swords and we're going to kill Romans. This is going to be awesome. We're, we're going to be, because later they do it. Later they're like, I'm going to be prime minister. No, you're not. Yes, I am. He's going to be king. I'm going to be prime minister. You can be like secretary of treasury. I don't want to be that. Well, and they have an argument. It's later. It's recorded in the Bible. They're fighting over cabinet positions in the kingdom, not understanding what it is still. So anyhow, so he says, um, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So, so it's not like that's the sermon. It means we're getting the title of the talk. This could have been a 30-minute message, and it could have been six hours, where he begins to explain, here's what's coming, guys. And what they hear is a parable. That's what they hear. They don't hear the, the details. They don't want to hear the details. Incidentally, Mark, Mark, in his gospel, Jesus repeats this two other times. That's like an exclamation point in a 16-chapter book that you have three tellings of this exact, not this exact story, but Jesus keeps coming back to it. Hey, guys, I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be... I'm going to be killed. I'm coming back to life again. So they hear this three times, and each time they struggle. And he talks about it, as Mark says, he just talks about it openly, plainly. So he corrects their misconception and their wrong belief. Let me ask you, have you ever had a moment in your life where you have been corrected by by someone for a long-held... Yeah, your wife. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, you have been corrected from a long, long-held cultural belief that is incorrect. Have you ever had that happen before? Most, I mean, most of us have. I mean, those are hard ones to think, oh, yeah, I'm not asking you to share an instance. But... But it, it steps on our toes because maybe it was passed down from people we loved and trusted. Maybe we heard things that were just difficult 
for us to transition. I had one friend, um, uh, older friend, he was in the, um, he just passed away about two years ago. He's one of the, he was, I think, the last survivor of the Bataan Death March. So if you know anything about history, Philippines, when the Japanese come in, American soldiers are cornered in a tiny little spot in the Philippines, finally surrender, and they, the Japanese, march them to a, a prison camp. Many died along the way, and somehow this, this guy didn't die. He was an old fella in my church, and he had, after the war, had spent so much time in hospitals for the next five years after the war, just recuperating, come back to health, that he went to college and med school afterwards and became a, a physician because he'd been around the medical industry so much. Well, this fella couldn't bring himself to buy a Japanese anything. He, if you wanted to upset him, bring up Japan in a positive light. Now, I will say, a sign of grace, but in his, somewhere in his early 90s, he bought his first Lexus and was quite thrilled with it. He realized, no, they're our friends now. But, but it was... It was a long held from personal experience. I'll say something very controversial. Uh, you'll like this, I'm sure. Um, uh, I'm a northerner. One of my favorite parts of the last few years is seeing all those dirty Johnny Reb statues torn down. I've just, it's done heart, my heart wonder. I have no love for Robert E. Lee. My people were from Michigan. They fought in, the, uh, in Michigan. Actually, that's not true. My people are actually from the South, and later they moved to Michigan to work in the factories. But I grew up a Yankee, so I had no sympathy for Confederate gray. Uh, it's okay. Show of hands, how many of you are sad to have seen some of those statues come down? It is okay right? Some of you are not coming back next week. Uh, you're like, I hate Bill now. I can't say why. Um, yeah, yeah. What's this? How well can you swim with your hands? Yeah, right. That's right. They threatened to hog tie me and throw me in the pond. That's not nice. Send help. Uh, no. So anyhow, I, I, I use that kind of, I, I use that honestly, humorously. I, I, don't, I don't think those statues, incidentally, since we're having this conversation, I don't think they should be destroyed. I do think they should be preserved and put someplace. But, I, but all that to say is, so when we have these long-held, like, hey, that's part of my heritage. This is part of my, my background. These are part of my people. I don't, I don't see it the way you see it on this. And my, my toes get stepped on. What happens? We usually get angry. And we usually push back. And that's what Peter does. So when Peter hears, wait a minute, the Messiah isn't going to just flex and push off the dirty Romans? He, that, he didn't have a category to put that in. So he does what any of us in this room would do when a long-standing belief is challenged. He rebukes Jesus. That's actually the term. The Greek term is he rebukes Jesus, which is kind of cute, you know? I try not to be condescending to Peter because he's Peter and I am not, you know. So uh, for all the, he's kind of in there. There are times where I'm like, is he written in, I mean, is he in here for almost humor? But he pulls Jesus aside, takes him aside, and he's kind of the representative of some of the other disciples. Lest we blame Peter, he's the voice for at least more than one disciple. And uh, he took him aside and rebukes him. Lord, that's not how it works. You are the Messiah. Don't. You know what, we all get down some days, don't feel down, you know, and he tries to coach him up or something. Hey, you can do it, you can do it, let's go get those Romans, you, we're here now. We, and it says Jesus turned to him and looked at his disciple. 
No, it says he looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Now this is callback. In, in Mark's gospel, he doesn't give us the full temptation of Christ. But if you go into Matthew, he does. Mark references there's a temptation, but he doesn't go into the, the temptations. Mark or Matthew does. And one of the temptations is, hey, you, you bow to me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms. You can be in charge of it all. And Jesus refuses to succumb to Satan's temptation. And Peter's just... So here's a fascinating bit, and this is just a little you know, a thought application is when Peter rebukes Jesus and Jesus responds, when Jesus responds, yes, he's rebuking Peter, but he's calling out the one behind Peter. That is, Peter's not his enemy. Satan is. And that's something that would help us keep clear because we, we live in a world, I, I, I simultaneously am addicted to watching news and I hate it. Because I watch it and I, I mixture of cringe and I feel a bit of rage. I bet I'm not alone. And so I read this stuff and I think, I can't believe. I, I, I was driving uh, yesterday on the Kilpatrick and there was a, uh, a sticker on the back of a car and it said, I think, therefore I'm an atheist. And I, I was offended. I'm like, I don't put stickers on my car that say atheists are scum. I'm a good person, therefore I'm not an atheist. And, and right, there in the, right there on the back of the windshield for all to see, I think, therefore I'm an atheist. This is, person was picking a fight. And as I pulled up, it was just, I, what was strange is, I've never seen that sticker. I've seen those stickers or the Darwin stickers. Or whatever. I've never seen those stickers on just what looks like a normal, well-adjusted, happy family that's on their way to a water park. This, I, I kid you not, I, I, don't, I'm not uh, I don't mean to stereotype, I'm saying my personal experience, and yours might be different. It's, uh, I pulled up, and sure enough, the, even the person driving, they had this mean, contorted face. Now, they might have been the kindest soul on earth, but their externals, as they were just driving along, just looked snarly and mean. And I thought, well, that's what it takes to put that sticker on your car. If you're picking fights with people with your, with your bumper... You don't know anybody and you're picking fights with them. That might say more about you than your bumper. Right? And, that, so, so I, and I'm not knocking people who struggle with their faith or atheists. I'm really not. I, and that's its own struggle. I have friends that struggle to believe and even tell me, I wish I could, I just can't. I'm compassionate to that. What I'm saying here is that Jesus is clear that the troublemaker is not the person. The troublemaker is the evil one behind the person. And I think that would help us. It would help us navigate through the clumsiness and difficulty of life if we were honest about who's inspiring some of this. Michael. That's such... A, we have to keep that in mind. Thanks for bringing that around, Michael. We have to keep that in mind. This is Peter's gospel, as far as we know, as far as all scholars until maybe about... 50 years ago. Now they question whether anything exists in the world, including themselves. But I only make fun of them because they're idiots. Um, but, but, but up till the recent era, almost everybody went, Peter's gospel. He told it to Mark. And so we, I, I take that at face value. That might not be the case. Okay. But if it is, that's really telling. That Peter goes, there was this incident where I got called Satan 
by my Lord Jesus Christ. Now he does leave out a mark when he sinks. So when he walks on water and sinks, he leaves that out. But other disciples grace us with that story because I think they're like, oh, Peter's all hot stuff. Well, he sank at one time. Um, but so, so anyhow, so, uh, so Jesus, uh, call, he, he points out who the real enemy is. And I, I, I think that it would help us to think that same way. Well, um, let me just... Uh, you know, we normally end about now, don't we? So I'm going to end right now because there's just too much to cover and just a brief. We're going to put a pin in this because that second part about taking up your cross, that's too important for us to try to like spin through fast. So let me do this. Um, we're going to hit, we're going to hit uh, to be continued. Any questions, comments, or smart remarks on this before I close this in prayer? Bob? That's exactly right. And this is, as we kind of, I, I like to make fun of the humanity of the people we meet in the Bible, but let's be clear about something here. Uh, they took bold and courageous steps that we only uh, tremble to consider in our own lives. And for Peter to acknowledge that, you're right. He doesn't hedge his bets. Well, I, it, you give all the markers. I mean, the reason we're following you is because we're pretty sure you are. It's you are. And... Jesus honors that. It's just what that means. Well, all right, let me close in prayer. And then if you have any questions or whatever, come up and see me and then uh, we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thanks for this fine group of men, for the opportunity to gather together, to study your word. Lord, we're honored to have this time with you together around your word. Lord, would you take something from this lesson and pierce our hearts with it so that we become transformed men who walk more closely through the power of the Holy Spirit in line with you and your will. We pray it all in Jesus' name and all said, Amen. All right, good to be with you, gentlemen. Have a great, great rest of your afternoon.